HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. A few months back, we had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with chef and restaurant owner, Bonnie Morales, at Now Serving in Los Angeles, which is one of our favorite cookbook shops in the entire world. We sat down with Bonnie to talk about Kachka or turn to Russian cooking, which is her own gorgeous, stunning, informative, and absolutely delicious cookbook, which is a love letter to her family, Russian cuisine, and everything that you want to know about pickled, soured cream, and other tasty treats. So here we go. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Hi, everyone. Sorry, I'm, uh, I thought I heard the gate next door going down, so it's really loud. It's probably going to happen during the talk, so... Uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming to Now Serving. We're thrilled to have um, our chef here, chef author from out of town. Uh, the book is book and restaurant is Kashka from Portland, Oregon. Let's get a hand, please. Uh, thanks for bringing the energy. Uh, the chef, she's been uh, beard nominated. Her name is Bonnie Morales. Uh, and our moderator, first time moderator, guys, so you guys can uh, uh, use the guest uh, experience cards later. We'll yeah. We'll <laughs> we'll never talked publicly up. before. Never talked publicly. Uh, Darren uh, Nevitz, right? Bresnitz. Bresnitz. Thank you. So close. Thanks, Royce. Thanks, Royce. Um, Playing it cool in the back. And so I was screwed up. Snacks. yes. It's okay. I've been doing interviews for a long time, and I always butcher the names. If you listen to our past interviews, if I just start calling someone by their first names because I've completely forgot their last name. <laughs> I'm like, Dave, what's up? Um, and thank you to Bonnie and Israel, her husband over here, uh, for um, bringing some snacks to So There we go. You guys are yes. off and running. Okay. Oh, and then if you haven't been here for an event before, after the talk, we're just, because it's so intimate, we're going to take the chairs out. And then we'll set up for a signing, uh, so you'll just be uh, out outside just for a couple more minutes. Thanks again. Bonnie, thank you for writing this book. It's great. Um, having family who've come from Eastern Europe and that part of the world, the restaurant, the food you make, really speaks to me. And what really spoke to me about this book was the importance of family and both what they passed down to you traditionally and also gathering on the table. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how your family and your parents inspired the book and the food that you make. 
Um, yeah, thank you for picking up on that. I think that um, for me, it was really important to open the restaurant and then subsequently write the book because of that, because I felt like this food that is very personal to my family, but then also to like lots of other people's families, um, wasn't really getting represented. Um, and so it was just it, uh, very much a passion project. Um, but yeah, my, uh, so my family immigrated uh, from Belarus in 1980. I was born the year after, so um, grew up in a Russian-speaking home and ate all those foods and then obviously did the whole thing when I was like in middle school and on, sort of rejecting that and you know, throwing my lunch out in the trash and then, you know, getting fries from the uh, school line, cafeteria line and whatever, things like that, not wanting, you know, friends to come over for dinner uh, or stay for dinner, I should say, um, because there'd be boiled beef tongue. So um, I didn't really come around to and um, get back into this cooking until I was an adult. And so um, when I when I did, it was really my husband's fault, but um, when we did sort of go into that headlong, it just became really, really important to um, you know, communicate through my very specific lens, but just communicate this very personal story of this food um, that, again, I feel like just doesn't get represented at all in this country. As a first generation, you know, Belarusian? Human. Human. <laughs> but just in general, what responsibility did you feel to preserve your family's culture after rejecting it as a teenager and then coming back to it, did you feel that things would be lost if you didn't carry it on? I mean, you went the extra mile because you could just cook those recipes at home, but you've built your entire professional career about this type of food. So actually, like, that's funny that you say that because we, like, my Israel and I met working in restaurants and we both have culinary school degrees and we both obviously, like, this is just what we want to do in life is work with food. Um, and knowing that, we always talked about how we would never, ever open a restaurant. Um, because it is the dumbest thing to do. It really is. Um, it is like the hardest way to make money. Um, and it's- 90% failure rate? 95? I don't even, I, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, if you're, if you're succeeding though, you're working, you know, like 90 hours a yeah. week a lot of the time. And, um, you know, there's really no work-life balance. Um, and you have to you have to love it and be somewhat crazy, um, and so we, um, knowing that full well, still decided to do it. You know, like just eyes wide open on that, and um, it really was because this food. We felt like it, it started with just sort of being like, well, maybe we just don't know it. Maybe this food is being represented in a way that we agree with, and we just don't know. So we did a lot of research, you know, whether that be online or actually like going out there and traveling and seeing what was available. And when we were living in Chicago at the time, or you know, like in New York and other places that have large um, communities um, from Eastern Europe, and just found like, yes, there were, it's not like this food isn't being cooked. Um, it's just not the way that I would do it, right? Um, there's sometimes when I go and eat at a, at a restaurant and I'm like, this is exactly how I would do this. This is, I, I 100%, this is just the way I would want this done. And then you feel like at peace because you're like, well then therefore it's already out there. <laughs> And like, this was just like discontent for us that like no one was doing this the way that we think it should be done. Um, and that was the reason why we went and actually decided to open it, even though it's the dumbest thing to do. I mean, Russian food to me from New York is Brighton Beach or, you know, someplace in the East Village that's been around for forever. It really hasn't been given that updated modern treatment like the way you gave it a kachka. Um, why do you think that's happened? Why do you think people aren't as familiar with Russian food, despite all of its robust history, flavor, you know, excitement? It's a, it's a really celebration food. Yeah, it's really complicated. I think that part of that is that that a lot of the times the food that you see is not meant, it's not served in restaurants. It's people do it in their homes because mm. it is this like celebratory thing. And so, um, when Russians go out to eat, and I should I should back up. When I say Russian, I just like want to. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. I, I've been calling it Russian, even though so in your hard. book you say this is not a Russian. Well, because I don't cookbook. know what to call it, and that's the whole thing. Is like, so my parents immigrated. It was the Soviet Union, um, and they actually came from a place that is now Belarus. But when they were there, it wasn't Belarus. It was the Soviet Union, but not Russia. Um, and they're also Jewish. My family's Jewish, so like their passports don't say Russian or Belarusian or Soviet. They say Jewish. We don't have enough like, time that was, to talk yeah. about. It. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, like, so Russian just is like a thing, but I don't even remember why I was saying that. No, because I asked about, I mean, 
reading this book and having been to the restaurant, it's oh. so diverse. It, it, and it goes from, you know, this obviously the stereotypical vodka infused vodka, but to then all these incredible like grilled meats and uh, like fresh, you know, uh, herbs and spices and things like that. I mean, it's the pantry section alone in the book is so amazing and beautiful that you have to really redo your kitchen in some ways to make this food. You think that more people would be attracted to it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So um, you, people do cook that a lot at home. I think a part of it too is when you're com when you people who immigrated from the Soviet Union kind of wanted to leave that behind. There were a lot of food shortages and quality issues, obviously. Um, and so I think there's a certain element of it that it had sort of left a, lot, a bad taste in people's mouths who were coming from sort of trying to escape that. Um, I mean, there's a sort of practical thing of like, I mean. A lot of people were computer programmers that were coming over at that time. I mean, that's that's a stereotype, but it's actually a stereotype for a reason. I mean, my dad came over and was a computer programmer. Um, and so there's just not a lot of people coming over and at that time and opening restaurants. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons, uh, I think, why that came together. Um, but I do think there's, as a result, for whatever the reasons are, and I, I, I you know, I can spend all day guessing, the reality is right now is that there is definitely a little bit of a complex for people who are from this part of the world. There's always like a little bit of like having to sort of like be like, yeah, it's, it's Russian food. Um, and, and kind of being shy about it and not proud. Um, telling your friends maybe you should come fed if you come over for a party um, because they probably are going to think the herring is weird. Um, and That's that, a mistake. Yeah, and that persists, I think, to this day. And that's something that like I've been working through and I continue to work through. Like Even when we opened the restaurant, I had this sort of like complex about it. Um, and I, every year that goes by that we, you know, are still open and people are coming in, it's like a little bit more a surety for me that like, hey, maybe, maybe it actually does have a place, you know, and it's not just, it's not just this thing that's supposed to be relegated to the sort of sides of the culinary world that it actually can be in the forefront. I mean, we make sure, like in the book and in the restaurant, when we look at, at the menu, that's something that we've intentionally done is make sure to use the Russian word for things. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to tell you what the English translation, or use the, the English is different, but like, I'm not gonna use the French term or the Italian term or whatever it is for something that's similar. I think that does it a really big disservice. I like to use the idea of like creme fraiche, for example. Like we've gotten to a point today where everybody knows what creme fraiche is, um, but nobody knows what smetana is. But why is it that creme fraiche is a more important term than smetana? Why isn't it the other way around? Right. And so like that's part of it is like continuing to like not make excuses for it and be proud and just like um, sort of like talk about it correctly and at face value and just be okay with that. I mean, let's talk about that from your point of view. For someone who doesn't understand Russian cooking or the whole picture, how expansive is it? How diverse is it? <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, just Russia, forget about the Soviet Union, is like 10 time zones. I think it's something like 14 or more when you when you include the Soviet Union. It's a sixth of the world landmass when it was in full swing. I mean, that's a huge swath of land. And the, like, you know, for, take all the politics out of it and the insane things that happened, the people are still people and there's still culture, right? So you have people from Estonia being displaced and then ethnic Russians being put in Estonia and all the things like that that happen. Um, Again, the like tragic part of that aside, the reality is that you have all this cross pollination, mm. and that's really really cool. Um, and it ends up creating an amazing foodscape. Um, and at the same time, because of the Sovietization and this like require this need to like create sort of systemized food systemized food supply, you have things like those shrots that we passed out before, those little fish, those being available in Uzbekistan just like they are in Latvia, which is where they're from, and therefore everybody in this massive swath of land having the same basic understanding of these like building block things, but then you still have these regional differences because you do have let's say sea buckthorn berries in the north and more you know um, peppers in the south and that's going to obviously create lots of different local um, specific details to how things are done but then this like crazy sort of massive under like um, uniform understanding of what pilmeni are for example because every factory every ghost uh, factory 
all through the land made it the same way. There was like a standardized, basically like USDA, you, should, you could think of recipe for how like a certain candy was made. So it didn't matter if the factory was, you know, in Siberia or the factory was in Ukraine, it still had the same recipe that they had to follow. And so there's this crazy uniformity, but then these specific details and ingredients to this huge swath of land. You know, you talk about that in the book about the tradition of these recipes. Even the Sprout comes up as uh, something between your mother and your aunt, and it's competitive <laughs> and it's secretive. But there was also a statewide uh, standardization of recipes. Mm -hmm. And so now you've taken those recipes, you've taken this to America, which is, you know, anything to everyone, make it as you want. What is that push and pull of making it accessible, but also updating it because sometimes you didn't have access to the great ingredients or your parents didn't so they made do with it right do you i don't want to use the word fix and you, we don't have enough time to get into the word of authentic mm -hmm. but how do you feel in the restaurant the cookbook you try and get that tension across that's yeah we don't have the time that's a huge <laughs> topic but basically i mean it's i think every dish is a little different um i think at the end of the day um you know flavor <laughs> flavor first, just like sure. with anything else. And so there are some things that really aren't broken at all. And not to say that that's the right way to talk about it, but like sometimes there's like there's like techniques that a, a cook at home might do a certain way and you're like, you just don't realize what the science is of what you're doing. So there's a way to fix it, not because it's broken, but because you could do it maybe more efficiently. You can call those flavors out a little bit better by doing it a different way. So like there's that, but um, Sometimes it's like there's just nothing wrong with it at all except context. Um, so like the herring in our fur coat is a really good example of like the herring in their fur coat that we've actually like become known for. It's like probably one of our most grand dishes. Um, is Keep telling people what it is if they've never it's, seen it's it. It's a layered salad. It looks like that. Yeah. Uh, it's a layered salad um, that has herring in it and um, there's pink mayo on top because it's beets that gets, the, basically it's not even pink mayo, you put beets on it and then the mayo sits on top of it and gets pink as it sits. Um, and there's egg whites and yolks and so it's got lots of bright colors. Um, but it's like, it is a sort of standard issue Soviet era layered salad. There's like, if, it, if, it, if there's not a herring in a fur coat, it's called siliotka patshuba. So it's not, if there's not a shuba on the table, it's not a party. Um, and it was also incredibly common in Stolovoyas in these like cafeterias, people would you know just serve it out like with from like a casserole dish. Um, but anyway, either way, it's more of there's nothing wrong with it. There's some details of like you know if you don't make it four hours ahead, you know if you freshly cook all those vegetables, if you make your own mayonnaise, if you you know cure your fish instead of buying it from God knows where, like all those things, those are details, right? There's nothing actually wrong with the dish. Um, other than the presentation and those little details. And so just like putting it in a, just like open uh, from a ring mold instead of in a casserole dish and just making sure that you're sourcing those ingredients well is all that's really different about what we do versus what you could find pretty much anywhere that you find herring in a fur coat. It's so uniform in the way that it's presented. So there's things like that all the way to you know, on the sort of other side of it, just being really playful and it being very personal and it being like a copy of a copy of a copy of something that my mom does that then I want to do differently and for other reasons, you know, like uh, my mom makes brinchiki, which are like uh, little crepes that you stuff. She does it with meat, uh, with chicken specifically. And like, I don't understand why she does this. Like, sorry, mom, this is like the weirdest cooking technique, but she takes, I, I mean, I understand why, because it comes from the frugality of like, you, you're cooking chicken for stock, right. but then you need to use the meat for it. So it's already cooked chicken. And then she like takes it through a meat grinder. So it's like cooked chicken sawdust. Ooh. And like, there's something that like in, but like everybody in the family loves it. And I'm like, I don't understand. It just tastes like sawdust. Um, and so like and for me- And you said me, that to her face, right? Yeah, totally. And, then, <laughs> but she, and she keeps making it because everyone likes it. And honestly, like I will, like, I, like I'll take home her leftovers and I will still eat it like cold standing over my yeah. kitchen sink because like I have like, you know, that yeah. like, a, yeah, that attachment from being a kid. But um, I also understand that like you're destroying that poor chicken and you know, I can do it differently. And so we, we treat it more like a fricassee and braise it and then whatever, make a gravy out of it. And like, and it's insanely chickeny and whatever. It's all these like technical things, but it's still the same dish. But that's very much just how I want to cook as a cook and has nothing to do with any sort of Russian heritage of cook cookery, right? Um, and then there's other things that, yeah, anyway, there's just like, there's so many different ways to, it's always, for me, I. 
So I, I have a design background, uh, product design, and so um, I often, rem like, when I think about dishes and food, I treat them like design problems. Like, it's very much like, you know, um, what's wrong with this, um, you know, uh, vegetable peeler? Uh, you know, it gives people cramps when they hold it this way, so why don't we, like, change the angle? Like, there's a lot of designs like that that have happened in, over the years that are, like, breakthrough designs, and it's all about solving people's problems. It's, like, figuring out what's actually wrong with the thing, and that's how I think about food. I just think of it as, like, a design problem, um, and so it's just very, very personal how I decide to treat it, and so I can't, there's no, like, code. There's no, like, I'm not, like, codifying and saying, like, this is the one way to, to pivot Russian food or whatever, you know? It's, like, it's so varied. You know, it's funny you bring up design because uh, part of the book is about how to design the proper table setting <laughs> for when you have a party. And I felt that in addition to family, the celebration party atmosphere really rang throughout the book. And one of my favorite quotes was, the food, no matter how it's defined, is a soulful celebration in the face of harshness. <laughs> and I love that because it really talks to this when you think of the stereotype of like Russia and like the bleakness of it, but you know, and cold and hard and things like that, then you take these personal things into your home and it's such a party and, 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 and fun. Um, but just the amount of food that you talk about that gets served at these dinners was amazing and the Tetris work that it, it was to get all the dishes on the table. So why is Russian food such a celebration and how is it so tied to culture uh, that brings everyone together. Like, was this the moment in everything? Like, it wasn't really about going out. It was about having people in the homes. Yeah. Um, and how have you continued that on tra that tradition on? I mean, there's obviously a lot of things that are at play here, but what um, what my understanding is just, again, like, I, I was born here. I never had to deal with this. But this is, like, my understanding from, like, my family is that, you know, going out in public was, A, expensive, but also dangerous because... There are ears everywhere. There's always somebody listening. And in order to have a real, like, like conversation, have, like, a, like actually be able to relax, um, you did it at home. Um, because otherwise, you, you get picked up by the KGB. I mean, you might, it might happen anyway. You never know who, who's going to tell on you. But um, uh, I think that had a really big part to play, is this... Um, this like sense of only being able to relax when you're in someone's home. Um, plus, there's all these communal apartment living going on um, in the like Soviet era, and so you just have a lot of people living in a really small space, like four families in a four-room apartment, right? Um, and so that also breeds this sort of communal. I mean. You know, a lot of times they're not going to share the kitchen and share the table, but if they get along, that basically creates a party every night kind of an atmosphere. Um, so there's definitely that. And then also, again, like, there's also a business component to all of this where um, in order to serve, like, this, and this is, comes down to, like, sort of, like, the, 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 mental, the Russian and Soviet mentality that had, it had to exist, but if you weren't cheating, you just weren't surviving, right? This is just a must in this time period, and so that means greasing the wheel. That means, you know, throw, you know, inviting somebody over to your home to, like, mm. share a bottle of cognac or, technically, Armenian brandy, not really cognac, but they call it cognac. Um, and in making sure to give them the most lavish spread, right? And that's a very important part of the whole system in order to stay not even ahead, but just to get by. Um, and so that's another reason why there was this like real need for this like home entertaining. And I think that very much relates to why there was always just like the need for that hospitality of like needing the food, the table to be more than full is like, that's how you show how much you care for and respect the people that are at the table. Sometimes that's somebody who you're trying to bribe. Uh, sometimes that's your family. Um, and that's equally important um, in order to be part of that society. And obviously that spills over into, you know, it doesn't matter that that period of time is over, that's still your mentality. And so that's still how my mom cooks to this day. And even, and it carries on to me in that like, okay, we just had two different close downs, um, you know, where we had somebody buy out the restaurant for dinner and lunch the day before. 
and like I'm looking at this menu and I see their budget and I know that I am giving them way too much food. Like I literally know that we could actually probably make more money, but I can't in good faith like call this kochka if that table is not just like covered in food. Your so, soul like, couldn't rest. No, and so like we're boxing up all these leftovers for them. It's like part of the whole like, like Israel's laughing over that because we just did this whole thing just the other day. We're like, we know that this is just too much food for all these people, but we're going to do this and then box it all up for them and then hopefully they'll take it home with them because I don't want to waste it. But like, I have to do it this way. It's like in my DNA. Um, and that's one way that we do it. We do it by like, we do the Zakuski experience, which is where um, when you come in for dinner, you can just like, uh, instead of ordering a la carte, you just say that you want this acoustic experience and for 30 bucks a person We just like give you a taste of every single thing on the cold side of the menu to yes. like do all this like flowing Zakuski like the cold dishes coming out um, that tries to mimic doing it, you know, at someone's home It's obviously not quite the same, but um, yeah Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. 
Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Let's talk about the Sakuski for a minute because I'd be remiss to not talk about the drinking culture that goes along with it. And I'm not talking about the stereotypical one. I'm talking about uh, your infused vodkas, but also the little snacks that go with it, both hot and cold. Um, What do people get wrong about drinking culture in Russia? Um, And how have you changed that? And what food goes along with the right approach to that type of culture? Um... I guess the stereotype is probably just that like Russians drink to get drunk. And I don't necessarily, I mean, obviously there is a huge alcoholism problem in modern day Russia. Um, And there always was. Um, So I'm not like at all glossing over that. But overall, like at least in my family and my perception of what that means to drink is like that's a family thing. And it's not about like going out with your friends. And it's also more about um, the way you socialize and it's about a shared experience. So like literally when I say that Russians drink and eat together, I mean literally you can't drink unless you're eating. Like nobody stands around in cocktails. Like maybe now they do, but like like the idea of like having a glass of something in your hand without food around and like standing around to do it, like that's like really foreign. Um, and then the other thing is that there's this, um, when I say like dr- like Russians drink together, they like also don't at a, at a table um, and there's food and whatever. Um, I don't just mean like they're all there at the same time and they're drinking and eating. I mean like literally, yeah, somebody might sip a little bit of something in between but for the most part, the idea is to only drink when everybody else is drinking, and you do it with a toast first. So, like, usually there's uh, there's a Georgian word that the Russians have borrowed, uh, tamada, which is like a, it's a Georgian word for basically like a host, somebody who, like, leads the evening, and it's their job to make sure everyone's having a really good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually the tamada, uh, sometimes it's the, ma- the host of the house, but will, like, sort of lead things and make sure everyone get- has their glasses full all the time. We'll toast when he feels like there's a lull but also like other people will chime in, but everybody takes time to give a toast and then they all drink together and then have some food and take a deep breath and like have little conversations, right? And then go back and like somebody else will do it. Um, and that to me, at least from my like at growing up in this and like as a kid looking at it, like that to me is what drinking is about. Mm-hmm. And it's not, a, I mean, yes, obviously, the end result is probably a bunch of people drunk by dessert. You know, there's a there's a Russian expression that basically translates to the weak man passes out in his salad and the strong man passes out in his dessert. <laughs> because ultimately everybody goes down. It just went. It just and went. so I mean obviously like yes, you're gonna get drunk. But it's not it's more of the like process of getting there, um, which is important, which I think is is really beautiful. Um, and the toasts themselves can be really, really beautiful as well. Like my dad, for example, always like if it's a special occasion, he will write poems, mm. and like actually like his toast will be a poem. Um, and some people do these like really long drawn out things. Sometimes it's really short and sweet. Sometimes it really is just to get drinking. There's like short ones that are kind of everyone has these like crib sheet of. What's your favorite one? Um, and then Russian, please. Um, Budim which is really short and sweet um, because that just means we will. 
um, and it the we will is sort of like can mean a lot of different things and that's kind of intentional um, and it's something that my dad's dad uh, a pair I know unfortunately he died before I was born but that was one of his like favorite toasts um, it has like a lot of just very very sort of simple versions of we will sort of folded into that you know bringing it back to family and the book itself what is the recipe that you think best represents your family and what is the story you're ultimately trying to tell through the recipes and the book itself? Mm. I mean, I, I don't know that there's one, I mean, man, there's so many different things. Um, the Golubtse, the cabbage rolls, I mm. think are a really important thing because, for a number of different reasons. One, I think cabbage rolls are pretty universal. There are, like, there are a lot of different versions of cabbage rolls, a lot of different cultures that have them. So they're very unifying. Um, and, and even within Russia and Soviet Union, there are so many different versions. And so like the one that um, my mom makes is what kind is like, so what we do is like, really close to what my mom does. The only difference is I put lamb meat and pork in there and these, I mean, she used to use pork back in Russia, um, but you know, uh, in the US, a combination of like sort of being uh, guilted into avoiding pork due to the Jewish refugee immigration and um, also um, leaner times in the 90s and up till today, she just thinks the turkey's better for you. Um, so <laughs> she does hers with turkey and chicken meat. And anyway, so th those are the only differences, just the type of meat. Um, otherwise, it's literally how she does it. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same exact time, that is the dish. It's also something that's been on Kostushka's menu since we opened. And it is probably the most divisive dish. That is the one thing that is the most traditional that I could possibly do, keep it as close to that as possible. And it is probably the most common thing that somebody who is of that descent will tell us is inauthentic mm. or is not done correctly. And it's because everybody, everybody's grandma does it differently, sure. right? Um, and so, but at the same time, it also, we've, we've had people in tears, literally in our dining room. I was gonna ask and about that. And that is like chill, chilling to me. I mean, it's such personal food with such personal stories and especially the uniqueness of it. I mean, there isn't, I can't think of LA of a restaurant where I could go get this type of food. So imagine I left Soviet Union, Belarus, things like that, and come upon your restaurant. How often are there tears over your food? Um, I mean, I don't know. I can't give you Israel's over there. He could probably tell you for sure. But it happens more frequently than I ever would have thought happened in a restaurant. I mean, I, having never cooked something so personal before, obviously, um, for other people and having really cooked other people's food or, or just like more generic things, um, I didn't even know that was a reaction people could have. Um, and so like the first time it happened, I was just like in shock and that was within a few weeks of being open. And then, you know, I, I get I get these little stories like every couple weeks of like, we just had somebody in tears in the dining room, like remembering their grandmother who they, they the, the, you know, the, the sort of not classic story, but the thing that I've heard probably the most common that brings people to that point is um, either homesickness. Like we have a regular now who, um, she's from Belarus actually. Um, and she just comes in and she eats eats at the bar by herself and um, just to remember the taste of home and because she's so homesick. Um, and the other one that really sticks with me is, and this has happened a few times, different versions of this, but um, you know, a grandmother, so somebody who's uh, second generation, whose grandmother who immigrated raised them because the parents were working and so she cooked all this food for them and they're now adults in their grandmother's past oh. and their parents didn't like take those recipes on and so they literally have this like flavor memory that takes them back to this time from when their grandmother was with them and when they were little and that like it like gives me chills um that 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 anybody can do that with food is so powerful and that i can do that it just it like that like it, that, there's no better motivator now that you've kept the tradition alive and you've really put it into the restaurant and the cookbook, um, what is the thing that you're really most proud about of keeping this food and this, this type of culture uh, going for another generation, if not more? Um, it, I feel like we're, we're, at that, we're at the forefront of it, which is crazy. It's like the, we're doing the hard, the hard work. Um, and it, it very much feels like, um, you know, you always, every person feels like, oh, I'm just one person, what can I do? Um, and I literally feel like we're moving that mountain um, slowly but surely. I feel like every year I hear about a little bit more happening in this world. 
um, and it's just slowly starting to pick up a little bit every year. And it's definitely still an undercurrent, but to know that we had something to do with that and that we are just, I mean, just two people, that's huge. Um, I just, I, that's, that's a huge, and then the other, the sort of like um, follow up to that is that, you know, at the moment we have about 60 employees. Um, and obviously restaurants are intentionally, there's a lot of turnover, people come and go, um, and that each one of those people that comes through our house essentially um, is now somebody who's going to propagate that message and has all of this knowledge. Um, that's really cool. Are there other culinary cultures that have gotten inspiration from what you've done by you shining a light on this culture that maybe people wrote off? and now they've gone back and looked at themselves and said, because of Kashka, because of your work, I'm gonna go out and make this food and honor it in the way that you have with yours. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I, 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 that'd be really cool, I hope so. I know, like, specifically, we have some staff. Um, I have a, somebody who was a sous chef a few years ago who um, has biking, biking blood. Um, and mm. has basically was like, w when he was working with us, just like, all I want to do is be able to do this with my own food and is now like starting a pop-up. Um, that's, uh, I think it's about a year old now. That's like starting to get some legs. So um, that's, that's really cool. Cool, now I want to make sure that we have enough time for crowd questions, but if people read this book and people come to the restaurant, uh, what is the one thing you want them to take away from your recipes and what you've written about and your own story and your, your family's story? Um, I, I just want people to, if it's their culture, I just want them to hold their heads high. Um, if it's not their culture, I just want them to walk away hopefully maybe including that cuisine in their sort of like Rolodex that they go through in their head of places they might want to eat tonight. Like, you know, you're like, I'm craving Italian or sushi or whatever. Like, I want this food to be one of those things that are automatically in your Rolodex. Mm. Um, but yeah, if, it, if it's something that is yours, like, I just want you to be more proud of it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, questions from the audience? I'm wondering your taste test tour of Russian food. Did you go anywhere in LA? And was there any, are there any restaurants in LA that you tried out or like? Um, I have not done a lot of exploring in LA, unfortunately, even though it's so close to Portland. Um, that's actually something that we need to do more of. Um, there is a restaurant here called Marivana that, um, I, I mean, in all honesty, the, they, they have a location in New York and one in LA, and I had a much more stellar meal in the version in New York, but the one I had, the, the time I was here in LA was many years ago, so maybe it's gotten better. Um, but that's like, it's a very high-end restaurant, but it's like meant to evoke some of the same things that we're trying to do. Um, I am sure, there's supposedly a huge Armenian community in mm -hmm. um, LA as well. Over in Glendale. Yeah, water. and so that's actually next time I come down here what I want to explore personally. So, um, it's yeah. good. I'm it's going to Armenia for a little bit of time in October, so I feel like I need to do some more, yeah. Any more questions? Right here. <clears throat> um, you note in your book the different cultures, how they cook. Like in Armenia, we have Khorovaz, in Ukraine, another which has Shashlik, but it's totally different. Yeah. And for me, I want to know which one is which. And I don't want just, oh, this is Russian. No, yeah. Or Soviet Union. You know, I want to know. And, and part two of my question is I'm a wine guy. Other than vodka, with these Russian foods that I've had, I've, what can I pair with some of these Russian foods? Champagne, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are great questions. Um, to the first one, whenever there's a recipe, um, I mean, there's a very, very detailed head note pretty much on every recipe. So Hachapuri is made there. Absolutely, but, but it's Georgian. Yeah, so hachapuri is obviously Georgian, and we not only do, like the, the hachapuri recipe we have in our book, not only do I list it as Georgian, but I tell you that it's a Marulian, for example. So um, I always make sure to call that out. I do think it's incredibly important. Um, but there's no, I don't, because this is so personal and it's not a encyclopedia, I'm not, I don't have anything that's like, well, this is what this is and this is what this is. But I do think it's very important to uh, make sure to give um, that credit. So we do that uh, throughout. 
um, as far as other beverages go. Um, what do you have? The, do you have a wine list? Oh, or yeah. Vodka so we, so thankfully, um, the last five years has seen such an uptick in import of Eastern European and, and Georgian um, wines um, that there's just so many delicious options um, right now, uh, more so than there ever were. Um, I think, um, Israel, actually, do you want to take this one because you are way, well more versed? Israel runs the beverage program. Yeah, I mean, um, vodka is classic, yeah. right? And you can, and I think that you should, try the cadence of drinking vodka and eating food. That's a really classic way of having it. But if you're having wine, which is not uncommon, um, what, what I think is staying in the same types of regions, so Slovenia, um, Slovenia, Georgia, Croatia, those are the, the three main ones we've got on the wine list. Um, the whites that I tend to lean toward are usually white wines that are um, aged in amphora, right? Large amphora, large clay pots that are from Georgia. They're buried in the ground. They're, they're called preferring in Georgia. Um, they've given rise to um, the big set of orange wines, uh, particularly in the state. Uh, but basically white grapes that are vinified like red wines um, that take on all the color and the tannic structure. Which is great for that too. Um, but then on the red side, I mean, there's so many awesome options. Although I would say Georgian Sabarali. Uh, Sabarali is a great Georgia, it's indigenous there. Um, is really, it's a really big, robust grape that you know, requires a lot of aging. Um, but when you have them at the right time with our design, it's, it's ethereal. You know, there's no place before. And you have these on your list? Yes. Mm -hmm. so Okay. Lots of them. Another And champagne? What do you think of champagne? What do I think of champagne? With, with Russian food. Um, it's good. I think generally, the, the people always say champagne and caviar goes together. I hate champagne and caviar. I think it's the worst pairing. It just is. Um, and you have something so delicate and rich and salty. And the last thing I want to do is wash that away with something like that has First of all, the bubbles and the yeast, and the sh there's a little bit of residual sugar a lot of the time. Even if it's dry, it's still like I just, it's just not, it's fruity, right? Even if it's dry. And I think with uh, caviar, especially if you're spending that much money, you want something clean that's going to highlight it and open it up. So, vodka obviously goes really well, and sake is delicious mm. actually with, um, with caviar. But yeah, I just, I, I mean, we, we carry champagne, and champagne has a really great sort of historical presence in Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, in fact, champagne basically was created for Russian court, um, Catherine the Great. Um, but it's just not a good pairing for caviar. But it is, other than that, though, champagne's just good with everything. Yeah. So. Any questions? Anyone? We got right, oh, we got two on here. We'll go you, and then we'll go you. Um, it seems to me that a lot of, like, Eastern Europeans in the U.S. are leaving here because of, like, a... That's a really good point. Actually, that's something I touch on a lot. Um, is that it, for me personally, the experience is that um, when you immigrate and you have no hope of going back, maybe the funds or maybe it's the actual political state that you you're just not welcome back. Um, you're basically from that point forward, it, your knowledge of that cuisine stops, but that culture keeps moving on. And so the Russia, for example, or Belarus of today is not the one that my parents left 30 years ago. And the, therefore the food cannot possibly be the same. And therefore my understanding as their child is stuck in, frozen in time, you know, like in amber. And so that in and of itself is really, really fascinating and is its own sort of like culinary culture. Um, and I think that that definitely, like I think that Russians who come here um, who are visiting um, have a very different understanding than 
Russians who immigrated then. And a really good example of that, for example, is um, there's these days there's Caesar salad in Moscow everywhere. I, I don't care what restaurant you go to, every place has Caesar salad. They're obsessed with Caesar salad and sushi right now. It's just everywhere. Um, you'll have Caesar salad and borscht and herring and all the things, but always Caesar salad. And there's this um, chain called Tirimok, which is like kind of Russian McDonald's. They do these blinle, these big crepes that are filled with stuff. That's their version of McDonald's. So it's like fast. It's even red and yellow, I think, their colors. Um, uh, however, they have a Caesar bean. They have, they take crap and then they put Caesar salad inside of it. But their Caesar salad is like with ketchup. It's like, it's not actually Caesar salad, but they call it Caesar salad. Just like that thing that gets lost in translation. Um, and I love it so much because it is so modern. It's like, it's modern mm. Moscow right now. And like, for example, we took a version of that and put it on our lunch menu right now. We have a Caesar blin and I know it is so, it is so modern Russian to have that. But people who are like my parents see that on the menu and are like, what is that? And why is that on the menu? Has anyone right? ordered it? What? Has anyone ordered it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, it's hot. Like, it's that whole thing of like hot lettuce. That's like, hot you lettuce, know yeah. it's wrong, but it's so right. Yeah. It's so, it's like, Do you grill the lettuce? No. no it, just, it just gets like, sort of slightly wilted from okay. the heat of the crap like closing in on it. But ju just that little bit, it like sort yeah. of activates the dressing. And, like you taste it a little bit more. Um, it's actually very good. One more question? One more? We got, yeah, we got one more. Right here. Um, I've had the pleasure of dining at your restaurant oh, once, hey. and one of the things that I loved was the music that was playing. It was um, sort of like a modern Russian pop band or something, <laughs> and I'm not obviously well-versed in the music, but I loved, you know, that you didn't just succumb to, like, Tame Impala or something, or hip-hop, like all other restaurants <laughs> would. Um, so I wanted to ask you, since you are the chef, how do you ensure your vision and what it is? Um, through your front of house, yeah. and how does that get translated through your lovely Portlandia service team? Like, how does it get distributed to to us, the guests? That's a really good question and really important, and I think gets overlooked a lot. And so, uh, so my husband and I run the restaurant together, and, he, and Israel runs the dining room, and I run the kitchen. And but we both get in each other's business all the time. Um, so that's part of it. So like he gets, he puts input into the kitchen, I give input into the dining room, it works both ways. And so that's a really important thing because of that teamwork and back and forth. And we have the balance. Like there isn't a power struggle there because it's not like I hired him, right? Like it's ours <laughs> together. Um, so there's that, but also um, like he, he also drinks the Kool-Aid. It's not like I'm telling him, oh, we need this kind of music. Like he, he'll come to me with like just as much enthusiasm about it. And so. Um, and I think we just both generally believe 100. We we met actually working in a really high-end restaurant in Chicago. That's like it was all about the service. We won a James Beard Award for service that year that we were working there together. Um, it's like understanding of like how every component of dining is important. It's not just the food. It's just so central to us that I think just naturally, just because of who we are, that gets translated because we feel like it's so essential that it does. Um, but specifically with the music, um, that's just some, so Israel is um, like a classically trained pianist. And I, are you, I'm sorry, you're rolling your eyes at me. And like, just, just like, music is in his blood um, and I love music I love to listen to music and so um, it's just an important component to us always and so when we go eat at other restaurants we like he'll be the first person to be like why the hell are they playing this right now like, what is this um, and it might be good music but does it make sense here and it shouldn't feel like a theme park you know it should feel real and like um, like something you want to listen to at home, but also part of the experience. And finding that sort of in between is really, really, having that synergy is so critical. Um, and so that, is, that we're, we're just obsessed with that. So I'm glad that you noticed tonight. No, it's Thank great. It's, it's very evocative and emotional. And I know that other people that I've, you know, that are my friends that have dined there always say that there's such a great feeling Thank um, you. at the restaurant. Thank you. Yes. Yay. That's great. I have, a, I have a question. So, and I, I do want to say, I think, I mean, I've only been in the book business for like a year and a half, realistically. But this this cover is probably one of the most stunning, appetizing covers we've seen in at least 10 years. Like, you cannot look at this book. And, I mean, your talk, your talk was wonderful, but I think this book is stunning. It's a beautiful book. No, it's a gorgeous book. Uh, but I do want to go back to what you were saying. So, because 
Kachka is so personal, and it's such a it's this rare gem of a restaurant that reflects on you know uh, Russia, Russia and Belarus and all and, and your story. Do you so do you you know again? It's not a French restaurant. It's not an Italian restaurant where you kind of like look over your shoulder and see what somebody else is doing on the other coast or what they're doing in Texas. It's like you guys are the pioneers here. So do you? Is it? How do you find like motivation and inspiration? Is it travel? Is it research? Is it you know you you still go, obviously you're a chef, so you guys are chefs, so you're eating everywhere, and then you're just kind of getting funneled into the kashka, if the kashka brain. So you know, <laughs> so how do you do it? It's <laughs> like so that's a great question. I I mean I don't think it's any different for any other chef out there. I mean. We, you still find inspiration, even if it's not Russian food. Um, some, sometimes it's the way something's presented, or, you know, just the other day I saw some Instagram posts where there was something in papillote and they just like put scissors on the plate, but presented it like covered and in the papillote for the guests to cut open themselves and have that experience. And I was like, that's such a good idea. Yeah. I'm probably going to steal that idea, <laughs> right? And that's, that's the whole point. Like the, the, in cooking, like you're, you're supposed to do that. And, um, uh, the dish is going to be different. It's obviously going to be something that's real in Russian and makes sense to what we do. But there's that little right. So you still find inspiration in these like very unlikely places. Um, travel, obviously, as well. Like we we have an internal goal of always going back to somewhere from the former Soviet Union every two years. Like I mentioned before, we're going to Georgia and Armenia this October. Um, I try to go. I mean, this time we're missing Belarus, but I try to go to Belarus every other year as well. Um, but that's really, really important, um, and just not so much for like ideas and inspiration, but so a lot of times it's more like affirmation of like what we're doing actually is still relevant and not just like, especially when we first opened. You know, because my view, my worldview of this food is very specific. It's just because of the the fact that my parents left in it, so it's I'm we're isolated from that actual culture. Um, a lot of it was just affirmation of like, is this actually what people cook and eat, you know? Or is this just my fam my crazy family? Um, and so there's that, like looking back, that's really important. And the other big one is just talking to my family. Um, I get like ideas and inspiration from the most strange conversations with ants and stuff that I like. They will come out of the woodwork to be like, oh, you know what's a really good idea or this thing we used to do. And like, it, it's, just, it's just really cool to have that um, conversation. Less a question, but expanding on what Kevin was saying, what you were saying. Like I have a, I have a close friend that works in a really high-end restaurant here, and he immigrated from Kazakhstan. And so he like his drive for like he loves cooking that food at home, and wants to do a restaurant with it at some point is because there's no nothing. He doesn't think there's anything good here that represents his understanding of that. And it's kind of an interesting, again, less a question, but like because like you have the family connection to it and that like that understanding your past but you're not like there isn't you're not again it's not a french hotel and restaurant there's nothing to just go eat and get inspired by like you're kind of creating something because there's a dirt of it and it's it's just a very different drive than i think most of us who cook a different or a more uh, western accepted cultural food yeah. have to deal with. It's, it's just interesting. It's also really liberating. Because mm. I don't, I'm never like, oh, am I thinking about it this way because I saw somebody else do this? You know? Am I, I don't know, am I putting green strawberries on this because everybody else is using green strawberries right now? Like, I'll see sometimes, like, all of what the chefs are using in town just because we all follow each other on Instagram, and I'm like, why is everybody using the same ingredient right now? Like, you know, it just happens, right? And, um, I'm less prone to that, just inevitably, and so that's really liberating. Yeah. And I, I, it's nice. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. Where can we, find, uh, of course, go up to Portland and see Bonnie and Israel at the Kachka and uh, Kachinka. 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 Yeah. Where is it exactly? Uh, Kachka is at 11th and Belmont in southeast. And then Kachinka's at uh, Brandon Morrison, also in Southeast. And uh, we're Darren, where can we find you? Just go to snackytunes.com. That's snack with a Y. Snackytunes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And you can also subscribe. We have all of our episodes up on um, Apple. You can subscribe, leave a review. Five stars, please. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.